What is our only comfort in life and death? This is the first question of the Heidelberg Catechism written in 1563. And its answer follows with this question or this confession. That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Is there comfort to be found in this confession that we are not our own? To not be in charge of one's destiny may sound profoundly like bad news. But it's actually good news when the one who is in charge is our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. It seems strange, though, doesn't it? To find comfort in the fact that we are not our own. But as our collect this morning says, unless the Lord will set us free, we are in bondage to our sins. Yes, we do not belong to ourselves. There's no hope in that. Certainly the Pharisees and the Herodians are evidence of that. So who do we belong to? Whose image do we bear? Our Old Testament reading reminds us that we belong to the one who does not change. We belong to the one who returns to us when we return to him. That we belong to the one who opens the windows of heaven and pours down blessing until there is no need. The one who protects us from those who seek to destroy our first fruits. The one who makes us blessed so that all the nations see that we are blessed. This is the one to whom we belong. The one whose image we bear. And now comes the moment of honesty. Now comes the practical question that concerns us. How then shall we live? Or better yet, how then shall we give? Giving, you see, is the crux of our readings this morning. For our Lord says through the prophet Malachi, will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. And you have done so through your tithe and contributions. Our psalmist offers a godly example of giving. Why? Because he beholds the beauty of his holiness. Because he stands in all of him. Because he knows that he belongs to him. And in our epistle reading, Paul says that he gives thanks to God always for the Thessalonian church. Why? Because the gospel came to them. They welcomed him and those who came with him and they embodied the gospel. They received because they belonged and because they belonged, they gave. And then we find in our gospel reading how Jesus brilliantly responds to a trick question concerning the subject of giving. Yes, he evades the trap and responds with these wise words. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Why? Because we are not our own, but belong to the supreme authority. We give not as those who are under obligation. No, we give as those who are hopeful. 
We give cheerfully. You see, belonging and giving is the subject of our gospel reading this morning. The principal truth in this passage concerns authority. It's about God's supreme authority. It's about knowing who we belong to and giving in such a manner. Just as Caesar's image upon the coin revealed that they were under his authority, so does God's image upon our souls reveal that we are under his authority. Whose image do we bear? What are the lessons to be learned from this gospel passage? First, notice the conduct that we must renounce. The conduct of the Pharisees and their disciples and the Herodians. You see, since Christ's triumphal entry, he cleansed the temple because it had become a place of business, not a place of belonging, not a place of communing with the Father. He had revealed to the chief priests and elders their hypocrisy. And we're told in the previous chapter, in verses 45 and 46, that they had perceived that he was speaking of them. But they wouldn't lay a hand upon him because he had become popular with the people. So this led them to conspire with opposing forces. And who is this opposing force? It's the Herodians. You see, the Pharisees, they plotted. And they conspired with the Herodians, a political party that would have been offensive to these religious leaders. And in verses 15 to 17, we are told this precisely, aren't we? We're told that they plotted to entangle Jesus, that they joined forces with the Herodians to entrap him, that the Pharisees enlisted their disciples in this mission, and that they approached Jesus with flattery. Now notice in verse 15, this word entangle. Some translations say entrapped or ensnared. You see, this word is a word that is associated with hunting. Jesus was becoming both increasingly offensive to these Pharisees and popular among the people. And so they sought to trap him. How foolish they were to think that they could trap the only man to ever live upon the earth who had not been clouded by sin. How silly, how foolish. And notice how the Pharisees joined forces with these Herodians in verse 16. The Herodians were a small party of people who supported the rule of Herod. Now these two groups as I mentioned earlier, were normally at odds with each other. Perhaps we could say that they were ideological enemies. Enemies who became frenemies because they had a common enemy. This was not a coincidence, but a plot, a premeditated strategy to destroy Christ's popularity. When we read this passage, we should remind ourselves to search our hearts and ask ourselves if we, like Pharisees and Herodians, find ourselves threatened. Do we find ourselves threatened? Are we like them, seeking to entangle and put Christ in a box because of our own interests? 
You see, we're inundated today with this notion, this secular notion, this godless notion of building our own life, planning our success. We do this in a number of ways. Like our Lord, we must empty ourselves, you see. Empty ourselves of our interests. Take the form of a servant. Humble ourselves. Become obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Yes, we must take up our crosses. And follow our Lord. We must seek not to fulfill the law. But to walk in the fulfillment of the law through the gospel of Jesus Christ, who was crucified and raised from the dead. Now, notice with me how the Pharisees recruited their disciples in verse 16. Clearly, animus with Christ had been growing. And this was evident since Jesus' triumphant entry. So what did these religious leaders do? They recruited forces and sought to discreetly ensure Jesus' demise. And perhaps this was a tactic to garner more support by those for whom they knew would be offended by Jesus' response. And notice how they approached Jesus. They approached him with praise, with flowery language. They said, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearance. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Surely they did not think that he was true. They thought him to be false and offensive. They flattered him in hopes that he would say something that would cause him to lose favor among the people and the authorities. And so we should beware of falling prey to flattery. Let us be like our Lord who avoids and evades this trap. Are there not many examples in Scripture of those who were overcome by sweet words? Was it not the pretended love of a woman that sunk Samson? Was it not the many wives of Solomon that defeated him? Were the sweet words of the Babylonian ambassadors that led to Hezekiah's captivity? We would do well to remember their folly and be on guard. We would do well to remember our Lord's example and avoid these traps. And by stating that he did not care about anyone's opinion, what they were saying is that he was not one who sought the reaction from the masses. He was not one who sought to appease the people. No, he was a stalwart truth teller. Despite not thinking this to be true, they hated him, we are told. They were actually describing here in these words that they thought were false. They were describing the very character of Christ. Here I'm reminded of how affected I am of other people's opinion. Sometimes I think I better soften the message in hopes of not offending anyone or making it more pleasant and comfortable to the ears. But I must not. And you must not. No, we must always ask ourselves 
by whose authority are we under? Are we under the authority of Christ? Then we must live like him. Beloved, we must live like our Lord. We must not fall prey to appeasing people, but we must speak the truth in love. In this passage, we are given two examples. One is the example that we must follow. It's our Lord Jesus. He avoids the trap. He shows how we can live cheerfully. How we can be good stewards. And he does this by focusing on the greater truth, the supreme truth. The other is an example that we must deny and renounce. Those who sought to trap Jesus because they found their interests threatened. Those who sought to be in charge of their own destiny. So I ask, what traps must we avoid? What entanglements lay in our paths? Let us take up our crosses and follow Christ. Let us deny ourselves. Let us find comfort in that we are not our own, but belong in body and in soul, in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Now notice how Jesus perceived their hatred. Notice how Jesus brilliantly responds in verses 18 to 21. Oh, that we would be more alert like our Lord, perceive these traps and respond with wisdom and truth. We read that Jesus was aware of their malice, their hatred, and said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius and Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Had he simply said that it was lawful to pay taxes, they would have denounced him to the people. For the inscription on the denarius read, Tiberius, Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. You see, this coin bore the image of pagan idolatry, and they knew it. Now, had he said that it was not lawful to pay taxes, he would have been denounced to the Romans as a rebel against Caesar. But Christ did not do either of these. Instead, he demands that they show him a coin for a tax. And when they showed him this coin, he asked, Whose likeness and inscription is on this? And they replied, Caesar. And by saying this, they were in effect acknowledging that Caesar had some authority over them. They used his money that had his name and his face on it. And so Jesus says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Not only does Jesus avoid creating riot or revolution, but he also reveals the angst behind each group's party. On the Herodian side, they acknowledged and supported the political power of Herod. They acknowledged the authority that he had over them. 
On the Pharisees' side, they acknowledged that the divine status of the emperor was a violation of the second commandment. They knew that this was a godless authority, but it was authority that Jesus reveals to them that is they are under. You see, Jesus gets to the heart of their concerns. He puts to them, them to the test. He affirms the ruler's authority to command, and he affirms God's authority of truth. The ruler had the authority to tax, and the Jews had the authority, had, were to pay their taxes. But they were also to owe God what was his. They were to pay their tithe and obey all that God had given them. They were to obey him in all areas. All of this is anchored in who we belong to. Our belonging is not defined by a wicked ruler, but by the good and the almighty God, the one who fights for us and makes us triumphant when we put our trust in him. You see, we need not to war. We need not to wage for God has done this for us. We are free. We are free because of Christ Jesus. For freedom, Christ has set us free, Paul writes. He became flesh and lived the life that we could not live. And he died the death that we should have died. This is why we give, because we are recipients of hope. God has given us the spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. God is redeeming this world and will use all authorities for his purpose. Therefore, we can give and we can give freely without consequence. Now, if we do not pay our taxes, an auditor will show up. And we will suffer real consequences, right? We may not agree with our taxes. And our taxes may even support wicked governments and do wicked things. But Jesus says, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. There's great wisdom in this first principle truth of humbly acknowledging power, is there not? There is good news for those who humbly acknowledge power. Does it not ready us to receive the good news of God? But we do not do this merely for selfish reasons. We're not to do this for merely selfish reasons. No, we do this because we believe in the supreme authority of God. That's why we do this. We're not called to be revolutionaries. There's a time to take up arms, but it should be rare and extreme occurrences. Otherwise, we suffer unnecessarily and suffer too much. We must remember that the, one day God will judge all rightly, both those who are poor with power and those who are rich with power. Yes, we must remember that God is judge, and not only is he judge, but he is the righteous one who conquers and makes us more than conquerors. Just as we are to give to man, we are to give to God, you see. Just as we are to pay our taxes, we are to pay our tithes. This is the minimum standard of our giving. The minimum standard. 
in this day and age of extreme individualism, let us be careful not to assume that we are the judge. Let us beware that we not presume to know too much like the Pharisees and the Herodians did. Let us remember that we belong to God and our words and deeds must show this. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And without works, our faith is dead. If one does not pay tithes, there is little consequence. At least there will be no one knocking on your door and forcing you to pay your tithes. But it's no less important than paying your tithes, is it? Or your taxes. You see, this is our spiritual worth worship. We are to give and we can give liberally because we belong to God. This is our obligation. And our giving goes far beyond than our tithe. Far beyond our tithe. Just as Caesar's face, you see, was on the denarius, so do our very beings bear the image of God. We owe God not only our tithes, we owe God our entire lives. And if we cannot give our tithes, then we will surely not be able to live our lives for our Lord. And finally, notice how their plans were thwarted in verse 22, where we read this. When they heard it, they marveled and they left Jesus and went away. You see, Jesus evaded their trap and they found themselves speechless, utterly shocked. Their countless hours of preparation were no match for Christ's instantaneous wit. But how? How did Christ evade their trap? He focused on the greater truth, the supreme authority. Notice the emphasis of how shocked they were. We are told that they left Jesus and went their own way. They did not go with him. They did not go God's way, but they went their own way. Church, we must search our hearts. We must search our hearts and learn if we are going God's way. Are we willing and able to give liberally to God all things? He's the authority of truth. He's the supreme authority and we must not just give our taxes and tithe. We must give him all things. So I ask, what will you give to the Lord today? Let us make up our minds today. Let us be determined and resolute. Let us walk by faith and be assured by our witness that Christ is Lord of our life. For what is our only comfort in life and in death? That we are not our own, but belong in body and soul, in life and in death to our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.